Gresham College presents Did God Evolve? An Evolutionist's Speculation About Religion by Professor Steve Jones. Thanks for that. I should get my apologies in first. I have no idea whether God evolved. I have no idea whether God exists. So, um, so and I don't really much mind whether God exists or not. But, uh, but what I do have some idea about, about whether religion evolved, and religion obviously exists, and whether we can explore it scientifically or not. And that's what I want to that's what I want to talk about. What predisposes some people to being religious? Is there any science in it? Um, uh, religious, are any religious experiences open to exploration by physiology, let's say, or psychology? And perhaps most important, under what circumstances uh, do religions of different kinds actually emerge? And I do think that there is a, somewhat of a consensus beginning to appear um, about this subject, which even makes it possible to do that very dangerous thing, which is to speculate about the future. Um, uh, the future, in this case, of religion. Well, it's a very old issue, of course, and this uh, image up on screen now is a picture of a bronze, small brand bronze statue, about that big, I guess, that used to sit on a in a niche on the main staircase in the zoology department at the University of Edinburgh when I was a student, an undergraduate student. I did my PhD there, and I was on the staff there for a couple of years. Um, and I, so I was there for 10 years, more or less, and I must have walked past this damn thing thousands of times, and I never really, it's still there, I saw it just a couple of months ago, uh, one thing has changed, when I was an undergraduate in the 1960s, it was just sitting there, and now it's screwed down, which I think tells, <laughs> uh, tell, tells us something about social progress, I think, yeah, okay, um, but if you look at it, it's rather a telling image, we've got a chimpanzee sitting on a pile of books and looking with a very puzzled expression at a, picture, at a human skull. And if you look more carefully, you'll see one of the books has got the word Darwin on the cover, um, and uh, on the open page of another book uh, is the magic three words, Eretus, Secut, and Deus. Okay. Um, well, actually, I gave this lecture in Oxford the other night, and I said, well, of course, I don't need to uh, uh, translate that for you, because, of course, all your, all your lectures, I'm told, are given in Latin. Um, <laughs> but... Um, they look baffled at me. Most of them, most of them were Japanese anyway, um, um, or Chinese. Um, so, but actually, that phrase "eritus secret Deus," I speak as a man with O-level Latin, but I have to say I've entirely forgotten it. Is a, a, a quotation from the Vulgate, the Latin version of the Bible, um, and it's from the third chapter of Genesis, and it is said uh, by the serpent um, as the serpent approaches. Eve. Uh, my latest book, by the way, is called The Serpent's Promise. Um, and uh, The Serpent's Promise is um, that Eretus secret deus and scientis bonum et malum. If you eat this fruit and the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And scientia meant knowledge. The word science was not in fact, um, was not in fact, um, 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 invented until the 18th century. Okay, so uh, so scientia knowledge, and many people think that science will tell us about good and evil. Well, I can tell you one thing for sure: science will never tell you about good and evil because they're human constructs. But it will tell you a lot about the how perhaps about the how the ideas of good and evil might emerge, and how systems of belief which try to enforce those ideas might also emerge. So. In some senses, science can ask, evil, uh, ask questions about religion. And that notion goes back quite a long way. In fact, Darwin himself, in his 1871 book, The Descent of Man, um, uh, noted, in, almost in passing, man has risen by slow and interrupted steps from a low, lowly condition to the highest standard as yet attained by him in knowledge, morals, and religion. So Darwin clearly had the view that religion had, was part of evolution. And I think we now have good evidence that that is in fact true. And one of the reasons why, um, why um, there was such a fuss about uh, the origin of species was that many people thought that, uh, that the idea that we were related to primates, chimpanzees and apes and other creatures, actually dragged us down to their level. Which I don't think is actually true. Um, what you can actually see here... Uh, is Queen, uh, Queen Victoria. Um, she's the one on the left. Um, and, and a chimpanzee from London Zoo. Um, 
Uh, what was that chimp's name? I forgot the chimp's name. I used to, oh, sorry, an orangutan, London Zoo. Um, um, and uh, uh, Victoria noted in her diary that the orangutan is fr uh, fr frightfully and painfully and disagreeably, let's underline that word, human. Although later in life, uh, she actually read aloud the origin of species to her children, showing that she was a serious individual, there's no question. Um, but uh, many people are concerned that actually science and religion have nothing to do with each other. They shouldn't, if, you, if you're religious, you shouldn't believe in evolution, um, and that the notion that we are an evolved creature somehow demeans whatever religion you actually adhere to. I myself, of course, don't think that at all. And in fact, my Serpent's Promise book is an attempt to explain various comments and statements in the Bible in scientific terms, some of which are very obvious, like the Great Flood, uh, others of which are perhaps a bit more subtle, like the obsession of Leviticus with, play, with, 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 with leprosy and with cleanliness. Why was Leviticus so concerned with leprosy? Uh, because the book was written about three and a half thousand years before Christ, um, at the time when the first cities emerged, and in order to get an epidemic, what you need is a city and people moving around. So the first epidemics appeared at just that time. So there is a historical relic there. Uh, uh, the book had a rather odd um, set of reviews, some of which were, I'm glad to say, fairly, uh, fairly positive. Uh, the Sunday Times wasn't. Once again, Jones cranks the Darwinian battle organ with the monkey of atheism gibbering on the top. <laughs> That, that, was such a, that was such a telling review, he put it on the back of the paperback. Okay. Um, but in fact, uh, what I want to do is to stand back and look not at particular statements from the Bible, but at, at, um, at uh, religion itself. Can it tell us anything of any interest which we don't perhaps know already? We um, can ask, for example, uh, now many, several people, uh, many people have tried to ask such questions. Now there are numerous books on science and religion, not all of which, or hardly any of which, have I read. Uh, these come, um, of course, from the dreadful um, Amazon website. Uh, but um, you can look inside for nothing. I hate the idea, but I do do it. Um, and uh, science and the world's religion, big gods, the biological evolution of religious mind and behavior. There's lots of it out there, but a lot of it, I have to say, or the stuff I have read, are flat statements unsupported by evidence. And now we really are beginning to get a lot of um, evidence about these aspects of science and religion. And people have tried scientific tests of religious belief for a long time. Um, um, the first person, perhaps, to do so in the modern world, the semi-modern world, was Francis Galton, who was, as I'm sure you know, Charles Darwin's cousin. And Galton was a remarkable man. Um, he wrote a book uh, about human genetics, uh, Hereditary Genius, which founded the eugenics movement, rather mistaken, rather unfortunately. Um, he's the only man, as far as we know, uh, to have made a beauty map of the British Isles, and at University College London, we still, where he left his fortune to found the genetics department, uh, we still have the little brass counting device which he used to keep in the palm of his hand as he walked through British cities, scoring the local females on a five-point scale, uh, <laughs> from attractive to repulsive. Um, uh, the low point was in Aberdeen. And I once gave a lecture in Aberdeen when I said that, and I rather foolishly said where it still is, and I had to run to, uh, I had to make, make a high tally to the station right, right away. But Galton did one thing which got him into particular trouble. He carried out what he called a statistical test of the efficacy of prayer. Okay? And here's his test. What he did was to say, okay, let me identify people who are frequently prayed for, and ask, does it do him any good? And people who are perhaps most frequently prayed for are members of royal families. God save the queen and all that kind of stuff. And he, he accumulated information on many members of royal families, 97 of them, and many clergymen, and doctors, gentry, officers of the army. Um, and it was very clear that if you looked at the life expectancy of each of those groups, each of which was relatively well off, the sovereigns are literally the shortest lived of all who have the advantage of affluence. The prayer has therefore no efficacy. Okay? The Archbishop of Canterbury did not like that one tiny bit. Okay? Um, now, that's amusing, but rather shallow perhaps. But there are some more serious scientific fits with, uh, with the religious belief. I'll just talk about a couple of them. Um, there's some genetics in religion, or genetics in what's called religiosity. There's genetics in everything. We shouldn't be surprised about that. But you can make a measure 
of how religious anybody might be by with a with a with a questionnaire. There's a there's a thing called the Carden Camp questionnaire, which got 97 questions in it. But you don't need 97; you just need half a dozen. Do you go to Do you go to church? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in the afterlife? Do you think that there is a greater being than you who is uh, controlling your existence? Do people who break the laws go to hell? All these things are simple questions to which you can give yes or no answers, and you can infer from the answers how religious somebody um, uh, is. You can do so probably fairly accurately. And if you do that to um, identical twins, and identical twins, of course, share all their genes uh, together, you find that the identical twins, the monozygotic twins, as they're called in the blue bars here, they tend to be more similar to each other in religious belief, for um, different aspects of it. Is, is God a judge? Um, uh, uh, are they, are they, do, do they belong to a, a religious community? Then our non-identical twins who only share half their genes in common, and you see indeed uh, that there's a big difference between the two. And certainly in standard and rather naive genetics, and this twin stuff isn't as simple as it's made out, um, that would be a strong suggestion. There might be some genetic variation behind the religious variation uh, that we see around us. Now, there is one obvious um, uh, gene, um, which is... Uh, there are other genes, there is other evidence that genes may be involved. One very odd observation is that people with autism, and people with autism spectrum disorder, and autism, of course, is a failure to interact with the outside world well, tend strong, these are American figures, um, so the uh, incidence of, of, uh, of uh, religious in um, of Christianity among, among uh, the general population shown in red is quite high. If you ask the general people in general um, about their beliefs, about 40% of Americans say that they are believing Christians. For all people with autism, uh, autism spectrum disorder, which is a milder form of it, uh, only about 15% say so. Uh, or, you know, autists are much more likely to be atheists or agnostics, and quite often they generate their own religions, and quite often indeed, because they're very self-centered, they're the god, okay? Um, I'm not sure that L. Ron Hubbard had autism, I think he was just greedy, um, but uh, that's quite a common thing. Now, but that's, that could be a statement that those people who have the kind of personality that looks very much inwards and wants to analyze Analytic, must be to be analytic about the world, are less likely to have this mythic notion of some un great unknown which is controlling their lives. I mean, if you want to see autism spectrum disorder, go to any university mathematics department. They've all got it, okay? Um, and they all want to analyze the universe, and indeed they all tend to be uh, rather non-religious. But that's, that might sound a bit odd, but there's one blindingly obvious genetic aspect of religion, which is that everywhere, worldwide, women are more religious on all measures than are men, by really quite a lot. Uh, they go more affiliated with religion, they have absolutely certain belief in a personal God, and so on and so forth. And of course, men are men for genetic reasons, so you could say the gene for being a Christian resides uh, on, on the X rather than the Y chromosome. The Y chromosome carries the atheism gene, there's no question of that. Okay. Well, all this is somewhat hand-waving, and I just... It's the kind of thing that people do. But there are some more impressive, maybe, examples of how you can explain particular religious attributes, religious experiences, um, using biology. Um, here's uh, a co comment from St. Hildeg Hildegard of Bingen. And Hildegard of Bingen, as you probably know, lived, I think, in the 13th, or could have been the 12th century, uh, and she was a visionary and also a composer, a composer of extraordinary ability, who, get, who wrote some of the earliest church music, which is still, if you listen to Radio 3, is still, still often played on Radio 3, and it's very beautiful indeed. And Hildegard of Bingen was a visionary. She saw visions, and she was also a considerable artist, and she drew pictures of her visions, um, that's what they looked like, and she described them uh, as a great star, most splendid and beautiful, and with it an exceeding multitude of falling stars. Suddenly they were annihilated, turned to black coals, and cast into the abyss. And of course she made some mythical religious interpretation of that observation as she was drawing it up there. However, many of us, myself for certain, have had such visions, and we don't need to... Uh, uh, attribute them to some message from the gods. It's a minor brainstorm, um, which many people suffer from, and it comes from a thing called a scotoma. Now, migraine, as you will know, is a kind of 
brainstorm indeed, and it can be very, very distressing, can be painful, can make people feel sick, they can't stand the sign of light. I don't have any of that, but I do very occasionally, probably once a month, or just a little bit, a bit less often, have this characteristic thing that's called a scotoma. And what a scotoma is, it's very hard to, because um, anybody's experienced one will know exactly what, I, what it means. It looks like a zigzag closed circle which often turns and can be brightly coloured, um, and uh, it, it's been interpreted by, uh, by Hildegard as the walls around the city of God, okay, visions of battlements, they were called, um, and uh, sometimes they block out the visual field, and you can see a, uh, a couple of images of the kind of thing they might look like. Now, many people have had scotoma, uh, and from migraine, often very severe migraine, one of whom was himself a clergyman and was, by no coincidence, also a mathematician, and he was the man, uh, the man who wrote Alice in Wonderland, Lewis Carroll. Now, actually, Lewis Carroll kept a diary, and he recorded many of his um, experiences, and uh, his, uh, he often, on several occasions, mentions that he has that strange experience of seeing a bright spot in his vision that is turning and blocks out part of the, of the world. He speaks of seeing a man with his hand held up and the, the bright spot blocks off his hand and then blocks off his, most of his head. And in fact, many of the experiences referred to as Alice having had um, in Wonderland are classic statements of the um, sentiments that people with migraine experience. Many people with migraine feel that different parts of their body are stretching. And there we have, of course, Alice in her early experience. Uh, <clears throat> Um, her body stretches. They feel they're falling into a black hole. And that's, of course, exactly what happens when Alice follows the rabbit into the rabbit hole. Um, sometimes they feel as if they're swimming the whole universe around them. They is sort of, is sort of is, is, is holding them up. Other times they feel that they're getting bigger and bigger. The rooms close in on them. And there's Alice closing in. And perhaps the best a statement of what's known as Lewis Carroll syndrome, that is called Lewis Carroll syndrome, is the Cheshire cat. Because what Alice did was to look at the cat, and the cat disappeared until only the smile was left. And in uh, Lewis Carroll's diary is the statement that he'd seen this man where he, he, his, most of his head disappeared behind the scotoma until only the smile was left. So in that sense, <clears throat> we can make some fairly convincing statements based on science about various aspects of religious experience. And I think um, most people would accept that that's true. Uh, there's a strong tendency uh, for various uh, visionaries to descri describe their experiences in terms that will be recognized by psychiatrists. But that's a rather shallow um, exploration of what science can tell us about religion. What I want to go on to now is to talk about the notion that maybe religion emerges through evolution, through particular changes and uh, developments in, human, in the human condition and indeed in human numbers. Now you will remember when Adam and Eve commit the first and perhaps the least original of all sins, they realize they're male and female, um, they are expelled from Eden. Okay? And Eden itself, well it was Eden, okay? it was life in Eden. It was a beautiful place, um, all they had to do to feed themselves was to wander around and pluck fruits from the trees and animals came and obediently lay down to be killed and eaten. In fact, uh, the life of Eden um, was the life of Riley, which is the life which was, which was lived by hunter-gatherers, people who hunted and gathered uh, their food. And it's worth noting that for 98% of human history, uh, more than 98%, we were hunter-gatherers. Okay? And when Adam and Eve had, uh, commit, uh, had, had committed that sin of, of knowing about sex, they put on aprons. Um, however, putting on aprons didn't stop them having children. Um, and God was understandably irritated and threw them out of Eden. And he, uh, and, uh, he, uh, he said to, uh, to Adam, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. The Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground. So in fact, he had to go and farm. Okay? He went farming. And that was the origin of farming. Um, and it's very noticeable that uh, they had children. Um, and one murdered the other, Cain murdered Abel. In an argument about property, it's worth remembering, 
Uh, and hunter-gatherers don't really have proper individual property. They live in small gang, small bands in which everything is owned by everybody. But farmers do have property. Cain killed Abel, and what happened to him? He was expelled and sent to the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay. Here's the land of Nod. That's a real place. Um, follow the arrows, N-O-D for Nod. Okay. There's, uh, there's Syria and, and, uh, and so on. Uh, and over here, we're getting over towards India. There's the land of Odd, and there indeed is Eden. So the land of Nod is east of Eden. Okay. There's something else I'll come back to in a moment, uh, which is the town of Babel. Um, but the land of Nod is an interesting spot, because the land of Nod, just here, is in the fertile crescent where farming itself began. Okay. So there may well be, the evidence is indirect, but there may well be some kind of race memory, not that I often use that phrase, of the origin of farming in the expulsion of Eden story. Suddenly, instead of being a hunter-gatherer, you become a farmer, which is much harder, much harder work. Uh, <clears throat> you have a much worse life. Um, and, um, uh, you have a much worse diet in particular. Your health, people's health are worse. And it's, I think it's, it's more than a coincidence that that happened just where um, the, uh, the, the first farmer <coughs> proper, who was um, Cain, was actually expelled to. And uh, you can see the Frozal Crescent there. The, the goats were the first to be domesticated. Pigs, cattle, and sheep a bit later. And plants had been domesticated a little bit earlier. Um, now that's where farming began. There are other centers of farming in, in the New World, in South, in South America, where things like maize and tomatoes and so on came from, and another center of farming in the, in the basin of the Yellow River in China, which is where rice was uh, domesticated. But this is the one we're familiar with. Okay. So that's, um, that's a, um, uh, a, perhaps a clear statement, that we do have some fit between a historical event and a, um, uh, and uh, and the and uh, and uh, some statements in the Bible. Well, so there could well be that evolution that uh, that religion has, in some senses, evolved. What is evolution? Many people think it's a complicated and difficult thing, but it isn't. It's extremely simple. Um, it's Darwin defined it in three words: descent with modification. Descent, information passed from one generation to the next. Modification, the statement that that passage is imperfect, that mistakes or mutations are made, and these errors build up. And there's a second process, natural selection, which means that evolution is a series of successful mistakes. But the fundamental nature of evolution is just genetics plus time in biological terms or descent with modification. And the first realization that that was true uh, refers to another biblical story, which is the Tower of Babel. Here we have the Tower of Babel. It's on the other side of Eden compared to uh, Nod. There's the Tower of Babel. Follow the arrows. There it is. Okay. And the Tower of Babel, of course, was the explanation of the world's languages. And it's worth remembering that until really quite recently, uh, the universal supposition uh, that explained the great diversity of languages across the world was a creationist one. They sprang into being at, at heaven's command um, when, uh, when arrogant man did something very uh, unwise, which was to build, start to build this thing, the Tower of Babel. Okay? And the, those of you who are familiar, as I'm sure you all are, with the story of the Tower of Babel, will know that it was done in order to reach heaven. Uh, the, the hope was if you built it tall enough, you could climb up the Tower of Babel and enter in by going in the back door rather than through the pearly gates. Okay. Well, God, who was a bit of a nimby, as you can imagine, not in my backyard, thank you very much, was infuriated by this, so he thought to himself, uh, I shall put a stop to this process and the way I will do it is that now everybody speaks the same language so they can cooperate to build the Tower of Abel. Instead I will cast down upon them the great plague of different languages so that all the bricklayers were Polish, all the plumbers, <laughs> all the plumbers were Welsh, um, all, the, uh, all the electricians were Chinese and of course they couldn't talk to each other so the Tower of Babel never got built. Okay. But there's an irony here because actually language itself was the first scientific statement of the existence of the process of evolution. That was due to a chap called William Jones 
um, who was a, a schoolboy in the 18th century. He didn't have the immeasurable advantage of going to Eton, which of course makes you more or less uh, a natural born leader, but he did go to Harrow. And then, you know, Churchill went to Harrow, so it can't be that bad. He was a natural born leader. Um, and at Harrow, he learned, as all students at both Eton and Harrow in those days, and of course in these days too, they all learned to speak fluent Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Uh, which he excelled, and he also discovered himself to be, while he was very young, a quite remarkable linguist. He learned effectively all the European languages by the time he was in his 20s. And in his 20s, he was sent to India as a merchant um, and uh, began to learn Indian languages too. And he was startled to find that there were some similarities between these languages. Um, what you can see here, and these are similarities are now to us very obvious, but English, Latin, and Greek, the numbers for two, two, duo, and duo. Sanskrit is an extinct language of northern India, but which has left a considerable literature behind. So we do know uh, what it consisted of. And uh, uh, William Jones, in fact, called it the most beautiful language he knew, the most logical and beautiful language he knew. And it was clear that these words are rather similar. Now, he th William Jones thought to himself, this must mean that these words are related. And what do we mean when we say somebody is related to somebody else? We mean, obviously, that they descend from a shared ancestor. And Jones drew the first ever evolutionary tree, which is the evolutionary tree of words. Uh, the word father in the Romance languages, padre, padre, pair, and so on, in the modern languages, they all descend from the Latin pater. And if you go back 2,000 years or so, at the time when Latin was the, ling the lingua franca, literally, um, you'll find that classical Greek at about the same time was pater, Sanskrit is Peter, Gothic, which became German, um, is Fadar, and so on. Okay. And so he drew this tree, and he went one step further and began to speculate that one day it might be possible to reconstitute the extinct word, um, which came before Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit, uh, which was the word for father in a language which we now call Pi, for Proto-Indo-European. Okay? And people have reconstituted that, languages, that language. Uh, really in detail, you can go to conferences where people speak Pi to each other, rather than throwing pie at each other. Um, and it's been, it's been mapped across, the languages have been mapped across the world. And the suggestion is, and the suggestion is, uh, I think, a very convincing one, is that pie, Proto-Indo-European, was the language of the first farmers. Okay. Um, and if you draw a map of uh, the way it looks, this is the way it looks now. Uh, here we have uh, a, a timeline going from about 8,000 years ago uh, to a language uh, where one of the oldest is a language called Anatolian, which lives here. Okay. Um, and another one which is pretty old called Tocharian, which is there. Um, and then we have languages like the, uh, uh, like the um, uh, Indo-Iranian languages here, languages, uh, the Balto uh, so European languages over here, ending up by the most degenerate language of all, which is my own native language, which is Welsh, the Celtic languages, um, which are at the far end of Europe. And this suggestion was that as the farmers spread out, and there was a point, as we'll see in a moment, there's a population explosion with farming, as the farmers spread out, um, they began to move away from the centre where they had originated, taking their languages with them. And they taught their children their languages, and of course they taught them inaccurately. And you could hear language changing in one's, in one's own lifetime. When I was first at UCL, as I say to my young colleagues who have just joined UCL, I said, don't worry, the first 43 years are the worst. And I'd been there for 43 years. Uh, and when I got there in 1972, most of the students spoke rather like this. They spoke a very clear, direct English, uh, which rather overwhelmed me, coming from a fairly peasant-ridden peasant, uh, uh, background. But now, Mike, I've just been teaching to die, and somebody came up to me and he said, yeah, do I have to go to this tutorial, or is it not compulsory? Is it online, then? Um, and, that's, and they all speak like that, right? Um, and, uh, and, uh, and what that shows you is a change, quite a striking change, in language over a very short time. And if that were to go on for 100 or 200 years, I very soon would have no idea what the students are talking about. And to be frank, the process has gone uh, quite a long way towards its completion even now. All right. So and it's much more than a coincidence that the pattern of uh, relatedness of the languages is the pattern um, of movement across Europe and across India um, to in, uh, in, in, at the origin of farming. This one here, Tokeri, or oh, bugger, 
This one here, Tocharian. Come here. It's fascinating. This is in, in, uh, in, uh, north, in the deserts of northern China. And it seems remarkable that China, one of the Chinese languages, a state language, but one of the Chinese languages was a European language, a member of the European family. And it was discovered, manuscripts were discovered about 20 or 30 years ago, and they've been deciphered by linguist, linguists. And here we have those words again, English for two, uh, uh, in Tocharian, it's wu and we, but that's easy. T to W is quite a common shift. Uh, and then we've got duo and dva. Four is stuar in Tocharian. Pedwar in Welsh, okay. Five is pan, uh, pancha in Sanskrit. So the evidence is good that even these languages even got into China. So how did they do that? Well, as I said, following the origin of farming, there is always population explosion. Because what hunter-gatherers do is live not on the edge, but they can't support large populations. Um, they live in small groups. Um, every, single, every single one of you on your way to this event, in fact everybody in this room at the moment, um, is seeing more people than the typical human being, by which I mean a hunter-gatherer, would have seen in his more than, uh, would have, seeing more people than a typical human being, a hunter-gatherer, would see in his whole lifetime. Hunter-gatherer groups were often 20 or 30 strong, and that was it. You never run into another group. Okay. Once you start farming, um, you start producing crops, and the crops are much, much more nutritious until that, uh, many more children survive and the population explodes. Health goes down because the early farmers basically ate the Scottish diet, and we all know what Scottish health is like, which is por porridge six times a day, really. Uh, they just ate grains, and if you look at their... Um, if you look at their skeletons, they lose height, their teeth are bad, they have deficiency diseases. But there are lots of them. So as the farming moved on, and here we have, for example, we have, what do we have here? We have, in Scotland, say, where farming came quite late, um, there's the arrival of farming, bang, population goes up. Um, in Ireland, also late, population goes up. In the Paris Basin, a bit earlier, bang, up it goes again. Um, and so on in Germany, Rhineland, Hesse, uh, enormous leap in population. And this leap in population is pressure to move out. And as you move out, you take your language with you and you have this, um, you have this uh, um, um, uh, evolution of language and the spread across the globe. So how does this fit with the origin of religion? Of, or at least a particular kinds of religion. There's a book by uh, Fraser called The Golden Bough, which suggests that indeed there may well be some common uh, attributes among the Mediterranean religions. And Fraser's books, in his eight, James Fraser's uh, book in his 1890 uh, Golden Bough, um, speculated that the Mediterranean creeds, Christianity being a very late version, but the various Greek, Roman, and North African religions long before Christianity and Islam uh, had something in common. Um, they began as fertility rites of crops because, of course, in a Mediterranean climate, what you have are the rains come, the crops grow and everybody's happy. Then the summer comes, the crops wither, and you have to beg the gods to have the rains come again. Ceremonies marked the death of plants and animals in the dry season, and a few months later, their return was celebrated as the rain consecrated its marriage with the earth. And in ancient times, um, James Fraser suggested, a god king was sacrificed each year. They had a last supper for him, and probably without telling him, they then beat him to death, or perhaps even crucified him, and then he came back, he was reborn, born again, in another human form um, some time later in the next season. And that, of course, has some clear parallels with Christianity, with the crucifixion and the resurrection and that kind of stuff. And in some um, case, in some senses, uh, uh, James Fraser was right. But he was probably wrong. In fact, he was certainly wrong about something, um, uh, about some aspect of that, because we now have evidence of formal religions appearing far, far earlier than the Mediterranean um, beliefs, which were around for maybe four or five thousand years ago, uh, and the that evidence came from a place once again in the in the Fertile Crescent called Gürbekli Tepe, which is, in, which is in east, now in eastern Turkey. There it is, and that was discovered in the 1970s by a shepherd who was um, wandering about with his sheep. Noticed some square 
blocks of stone. Told the local museum about this. This um, archaeologists came and started digging, and they discovered a quite extraordinary, a quite extraordinary building on this on this on on, on, on Tepe, um, which was clearly a church or a temple of some kind. And the the uh, the the, the, um, the uh, excavation isn't complete. But even in this incomplete excavation, you can see there are seven of these circular uh, buildings here, complicated and really quite sophisticated walls. Look in more detail, and you have many, many of these decorated stones, which are, have images of animals on them, particularly the images of vultures. And it may well be that this was a Zoroastrian kind of culture where, where people practiced sky burial. They put out the corpses of the dead who were then eaten by vultures. And if you uh, look around the landscape, there are the bones of thousands or hundreds of thousands of sheep and cattle. And the suggestion is this was an early center of the first organized religions. And we should point out that the place is um, eight and a half thousand years older or 8,000 years older than the Giza Pyramid, and, and 8,000 years older than Stonehenge. So this is very sophisticated stuff. So that the early farmers maybe began to develop these, um, these sophisticated religions that could afford to build complicated and expensive structures, and many people would come from miles around to worship in these structures. And no doubt, in order to maintain those structures, uh, there would be a priesthood, no doubt, with many uh, 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 many rituals, um, which would make keep things in order. And if you look again in South America, that separate um, origin of agriculture, a little bit later, you find exactly the same thing. Those enormous uh, Aztec and Inca, Inca cities um, emerge at just the time when agriculture began, rather later there than in the Middle East. So there's something about the origin of agriculture and the origin. Of formal, um, of formal religion of a particular kind. Now, it's clearly the case, and if you look at the anthropological writings about hunter-gatherers, hunter-gatherers, I think everybody, has some kind of belief. But hunter-gatherers, in general, tend to believe in a god who makes the rains come or makes the crops grow, and not in the kind of god that we're familiar with that keeps a beady eye on everything you do. Okay, um, um, And uh, the... Um, the, uh, the religions <coughs> uh, which we're familiar with, things like uh, uh, Islam and uh, Christianity, um, they, they are based on the idea of, a, of a, a fearsome God. And the fearsome God punishes um, evildoers. Why does he do that? Because one of the things that rapidly emerged in the early days of all religions, Christianity included, was great social inequality. Here we have Ur of the Chaldees, which is where Abraham was born, and sometime later, after Abraham, Solomon was around. The weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents. Uh, he had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. And the argument is that these punitive religions emerged in order, as Marx put it, as Marx suggested, um, that it, this, they emerged in order to keep the lower orders in place. Religion was the opium of the people. And the way in which you kept the lower orders in place, well, one person had 40,000 stalls of horses, and other people only had one, sounds a bit familiar to me, I have to say, um, in the modern world, was to have these punitive gods, okay? Uh, these powerful gods. And most modern religions have got that. Um, Hindu has uh, Yama, the god of death. Hinduism has Yama, the god of death. Uh, Chinese and, and B have the ten kings of hell. Christianity, of course, has Judgment Day, where sinners, those who went to, uh, where the, the righteous, uh, people who went to University College London, for example, will go to heaven, and sinners, those from Imperial College London, will burn in hell. <laughs> Our students always cheer when I say that. Um, um, and uh, indeed, even Buddhism has the wheel of life, and if you have bad karma, terrible things will happen to you. Um, and this might be indeed a punitive mechanism for imposing the social inequality upon society. And it's noticeable that the first walled cities, the first empires, um, all began at about or just after this time. Right. Now that sounds a bit speculative, but in fact there's some evidence from the modern world that that's true, uh, or the recent world. Because you can go out, and anthropologists for a long time have gone out and asked people with different methods of, uh, of subsistence um, about, jeal about jealous gods. I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, even unto the sixth and seventh generation. Okay. And if you go to foragers, who are hunter-gatherers who just wander the countryside picking nuts and berries, basically, they have gods okay, but the great majority of them don't have high gods. They have gods that make the rains come. Okay, that's all. Um, um, they have, they, a few of them have got, these, uh, have got these active or moral gods which keep an eye on people. And if people sin, God knows about it and may well punish. But in general, the moral gods do not bother themselves with people, even if they exist, but they don't bother themselves with some nerd who's going around picking up nuts, nuts and berries. Okay. Um, if you move a step forward from foraging to pastoralism, which was Cain's um, pastime, he had herds of he had flocks of sheep, um, then you find all of a sudden, and Cain owned these flocks of sheep, all of a sudden the active or moral gods make up the great majority and the inactive ones fade into obscurity. Okay? So that uh, inequality, some people with lots of sheep, people with not much sheep, um, uh, leads to that, uh, to the involvement of powerful and jealous gods. The same is true if you move up from horticulture, gardening, your own little patch of peasant-like land, um, again, the great majority of those, those societies have got either no high gods or they don't interest themselves in human doings. A few have got powerful gods. But if you move to intensive agriculture where somebody owns a farm and hires laborers, uh, once again, you've got the powerful gods rattling their cage and causing all kinds of trouble for those who go on strike or eat, too, or eat one too many potatoes. Okay? And there's kind of a, a more general phenomenon that if you go to the size, the numbers in a particular community, you see a striking relationship between the numbers of people and the involvement of powerful and often angry moral gods. So what is going on? Okay. Well, it's clearly a, um, a, a fit there, which in fact reflects itself not just in the world of the hunter-gatherers, and the hunter-gatherers are gone now, there are really none left, um, but they, they were studied in the 19th and early 20th century when there were some. Um, it reflects itself in the modern world, and it's the, it is indeed, in its modern reflection, a statement of the importance of inequality in giving rise to organised religions with hierarchies, castes, and priesthoods. Okay. There's a thing which I'm sure that all of you have heard of, which is called the Gini Index. And the Gini Index is an objective measure of inequality or equality within a society. If a society has a total wealth, a society of a, a thousand people, let's say, contains within itself a total wealth of a million pounds, and one person has got all the money, so it's a bit like um, modern British society, not quite one person, but it would be, uh, um, uh, then the Gini Index would be one. Okay? If everybody had a thousand pounds each, then the Gini Index would be zero. So the greater the inequality in any society, the higher the Gini index. And you can see the most, the highest in this group of developed countries is perhaps unsurprisingly the United States. We have the, uh, uh, we are proud to say that we're the second most unequal. We are the most unequal in Europe. We took over to Portugal a couple of years ago. So now we're the most unequal country in Europe. And with a bit of luck and continuation and good luck at the next election, we'll probably overtake the United States. Uh, but if you go to, if you go to places like um, Sweden, the inequality is much less. Um, but of course, I have to say, if you go to places like Brazil and uh, places like Nigeria, the equality is much more, and Gini is even higher. And there's a completely striking fit across countries across the world between the Gini index and the importance of religion. So the higher the Gini index in many societies, a large number of societies here, uh, the more important is religion to life. A higher proportion of people identify themselves as religious or believe in God and so on. So once again, we've got inequality fitting and with uh, fitting um, with religion, exactly as perhaps happened at the origin of farming. Okay, so this seems to be a fairly uh, uh, consistent and uh, firm association. You can look at it, these figures in a different way. The United Nations has a, a measure called the Successful Societies Index. And this is kind of bleeding obvious, but it puts together a number of different attributes, life expectancy of men and women, um, education levels, uh, crime levels, uh, things of this nature, in order to define a society as successful or otherwise. And in developed countries, you get a successful society scale like this, with one famous outlier, the United States, 
which has the least successful society on many different levels, healthcare, crime, and so on, and is overwhelmingly the most religious society uh, in this group of mainly European, European, Australian, Canadian countries. Okay. So once again, evidence that that's actually true. So the evidence, I think, is really quite good. Now, that, so what, what's going on? It turns on, as I've said several times, it turns on demography, on population numbers. And um, we, many of us actually uh, congratulate ourselves, perhaps wrongly, that religion is in decline in the United Kingdom. Here we have a, the proportion of people who identify themselves as Christian, or Church of England at least, which is scarcely, I think scarcely counts, but still. Okay, and versus non-believers, and you'll see that in 2008 the lines actually crossed. Uh, in the United States even, the number of believers is going down. Uh, however, as we'll see in a moment, demography means that's not the way things are going to happen. So what is demography? Demography is the... Is the um, is the uh, study of human numbers. And Charles Darwin, before he wrote The Origin, when he was still struggling with trying to work out what was going on in the living world, he writes in his diary, I read one day for amusement, my God, for amusement, um, uh, Thomas Malthus' essay on the principle of population. I have read that it's not amusing at all, I can assure you. Um, and he said, at last I have a theory to work with. Here then, at last I had got a theory on which to work. In the numbers would increase um, uh, logarithmically, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, whereas resources, to put it crudely, would be arithmetic, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, so that there would be always be pressure of numbers. Some people would survive and some people wouldn't. Those that were better at surviving would pass on their heritage, and then you had a mechanism whereby things would change. So that we've seen the origin of religion had to do with demography. Okay? Uh, there was an explosion of numbers, and suddenly particular religions seen for one reason or another to be more successful and they established themselves. Okay. So what you can ask is from that, what's going to happen in the future? And again, there is a generally universal rule, both within countries and across the globe, that countries which are individuals and countries which are more religious are more fecund, they have more children. Now, I haven't been able to find a global one, but this is the only one I could find. But let's take the number of children to, born to mothers in Germany, okay? This is the red line here. People who never go to church have about 1.4 children per mother. Those who go on holiday, on holy days, 1.44. Those who go uh, once a week, 1.8. And those who go, those who go more often, uh, 1.98. Across the globe, and this is a very limited sample, there are plenty of countries not on this graph, um, the numbers are higher, but the pattern is exactly the same. Okay. So in order, it's worth remembering, of course, that Europe is not maintaining its own numbers. The only country in Europe which does maintain its own numbers is whoopee, Britain, godless though we might be, we do just about have enough children to maintain numbers. But you can see that in Europe as a whole, in order to keep Europe going, in population terms, you need to go to church more than, at least once a week, at least once a week, okay? <laughs> more often than once a week. So that's interesting. So what you can therefore do is make some guesses about what will happen to the future of, um, of um, Europe. Well, there's one thing which is very clear. Uh, is that populations which are... Oh, this is an extreme example of where this is happening. Uh, these are the Amish, and the Amish are a North American group who came across in the 18th century from Europe where they were being persecuted. For, they were Anabaptists, 17th century. They were Anabaptists, but they didn't believe in, in, in uh, immersion baptism um, and, as of children. And uh, for a long time, there weren't many of them, but they have lots of children, okay? And they live this eccentric life. Many of you may have seen them in Ohio and northern Pennsylvania, uh, where they like to live in the 18th century. They wear 18th century clothes. They have horses and carts rather than cars. Uh, some of the less strict... Um, groups. They're called the Black Bumper Amish. They have cars, but they paint the bumpers black, which is a bit like, so it's not showy, right? Um, which is a bit like the Church of England, I can't help thinking. Okay. But they have lots of children. And here's the numbers of Amish from 1900 to 2000. In 1900, across the whole of the US, there are probably four or 5,000 of them. In the year 2000, there were 180,000. And at that rate of increase, by the year 2100, there will be as many Amish in the US as there are people in the US today. That's not likely to happen. But that's an extreme statement of the effect of religion on fertility. So in order to know what's going to happen to the future, all we have to do is to ask, where in the world is population growth 
the greatest. And it's blindingly believed and obvious that it's in sub-Saharan Africa, okay? Uh, that's Afghanistan, but that's uh, an exception. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And most countries have gone through what's called the demographic transition. That's the shift from high numbers of children, most of whom die, to low numbers of children, um, most of whom survive. Africa has... Uh, India did that really remarkably quickly. China even quicker. And I have to say, in China, with the one-child policy, there was quite a lot of government pressure to do it, uh, but it succeeded. Africa overwhelmingly has not. Some countries in Africa, the mean number of children per mother is seven or eight. In plenty of countries in Africa, um, in, uh, in um, Sierra Leone, for example, the mean number is five or six. And what's interesting is that if you travel in Africa, as I have done in the past quite extensively, um, what's interesting is even middle, and Africa is, economically is booming. Pe people see Africa as a, as, a, as a basket case. It is not a basket case at all. Uh, in large parts of Africa, its economy is in very good shape. Uh, strangely enough, even relatively well-off and educated Africans tend to want to have large numbers of children. Okay. Now, let's have genetic effects. If you look globally, the... Um, Incidence of, um, skin, of genes for skin colour across the world has actually changed. After 1492, when Europeans started moving into the Americas, let's say, the incidence of skin colour genes for white skin shot up because Europeans covered the whole world and their numbers boomed. Uh, Africans didn't travel very much, apart from the slaves, they didn't really want to travel, um, and uh, so uh, the incidence of black skins went down. But now that's completely reversed itself because of population growth in, in Africa. In fact, world in 1950, there were about twice as many white people as black people in the world. Nowadays, there are about the same number of white people as black people in the world. And on present terms, in, tw in 2050, there will be twice as many black people as white people in the world, for reasons that have got nothing to do with the properties of black skin. It's a purely population-based, uh, group-based phenomenon. So, I mean, I, I, those figures are, I think, correct. I mean, that is going to happen. You can see it happening. So you can predict what's going to happen to the frequency of black skins given this, this pattern of population growth. And you can also predict what's going to happen to the frequency of belief because uh, in the future. And the, this illustrates quite how dramatic the effect is. This, see, these are the United Nations statements about population growth until 2050. And you can see Europe is going to sink in numbers. Most other places go up at roughly the same rate. The great exception is Africa, which goes rocketing up. And it may well be that by 2050, Africans probably represent as much as half the world population. So what's that going to do to the future of belief? Well, where, all you have to do is to ask where in the world is belief stronger? This is the religiosity index across the world. And if you look at Africa, the light green is more religious. And the only place in the world which is both booming in numbers and highly religious, and Africa, as many Africans as people, many people will know, are very deep believers often in a rather fundamentalist kind of Christianity. And the only place in the world where we have both enormous population growth and high belief in religion is Africa. So what that tells us, for simple demographic, indeed evolutionary reasons, that the future is Christianity. That Christianity is going to is is now booming and will continue to boom across the world. Now, for somebody who, like myself, is a bit of an atheist, that perhaps might hope to use religion through science, as so many people have tried futilely to do, to disprove religion. You can't do that at all. Um, this may be somewhat. Um, somewhat alarming. And perhaps it suggests to me that what universities should be treating, should be teaching now is not a new generation of scientists and biologists, but a new generation of theologians. So I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs>